Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie morning the 26th of September with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Now the Minister for Housing, Owen Murphy, comfortably survived a motion of no confidence in him last night. Fianna Fáil abstained from the vote but it ended up that 59 TDs supported the Minister whilst 49 said they had no confidence in him. The debate to some degree was predictable given how long this crisis has been going on in terms of the criticism of the government policies and indeed the response from both Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil to Sinn Féin that this was a political stunt. Let's hear a little bit of what the Taoiseach Leo Vratker had to say before the debate. Sinn Féin is looking to score some political points so they put down a motion, a motion that is just pure politics, a motion that is just pure politics, tactical, cynical, personalised and ineffective. And there's one thing that is absolutely certain. There's one thing that's absolutely certain. The Sinn Féin motion put down tonight, if passed, will not house a single person, nor will it help us to build houses any quicker than we are already. And this is all we have from Sinn Féin. Oppositional politics, cynical politics, personalised politics. They don't really care about people who are homeless. They don't really care about people on the housing list. They don't really care about young couples who are struggling to buy for the first time. That's why they put forward no solutions. When they put forward solutions, they're solutions that don't work. And all over, their co- all over the country, all over the country, when they can help, all over the country, when they can help, their councillors vote down social housing uh, proposals. Whether it's in South Dublin, whether it's in the North Inner City, uh, whether it's cutting the property tax uh, to reduce funding to homeless services. This is the truth of Sinn Féin. Now that motion was tabled by Sinn Féin's spokesperson on housing, Ono Brin, who's on the line. Tactical, cynical and personalised. Has Sinn Féin any solutions to offer Ono Brin? We have, and I have to say, I thought the Taoiseach's uh, comments uh, were very disappointing. First of all, let's be very clear, there has been not a single social housing development anywhere in the country blocked by Sinn Féin. In fact, we have a very strong record ensuring that good quality social and affordable housing uh, is delivered by local authorities. Unfortunately, in the local authority area where the Taoiseach mentioned South Dublin, uh, it was Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil who opposed proposals for 3,000 social and affordable homes in a very large strategic development zone, and it's important that we get that right. Look, our job in opposition is to hold the government to account. Uh, and when the government's policies are failing uh, people, uh, then it is right that we call them out on it. And the figures speak for themselves. 
two years we've had this uh, uh, government housing policy. Uh, homelessness is up 60%, child homelessness up 77%, pensioner homelessness up 80%. There will be less real social houses delivered by government this year than last, and not a single affordable home delivered last year, this year, and probably not next year. Uh, and uh, if Owen Murphy was, was, was the kind of minister, which I think he could be, uh, he would go to government and say, look, folks, the plan isn't working, we need to change. But instead, he defends the indefensible, and both he and the Taoiseach attack everybody else to try and deflect from their own failings. What, what we were doing yesterday is saying things need to change. Uh, and a number of my colleagues in the debate yesterday uh, highlighted the raft of legislation, policy proposals and budget alternatives that we've proposed over two years. I mean, I sat, for example, for seven weeks in early 2016 at the start of the 32nd Dáil on a committee uh, that put together a detailed report on solutions to the housing crisis, uh, 20-odd priority recommendations, almost all of which have been ignored by government. Mm. Uh, in the housing committee uh, and on the floor of the Dáil, we continually propose detailed policy alternatives. Now, it's clear that the government doesn't agree with them, uh, but that's a separate issue. Okay, but I I asked you over again why you were tabling this motion now when you could have done it in May when you said you had no confidence in uh, the minister. And here we are two weeks out from a a budget. Uh, One of the most important parts of the legislative calendar. Uh, In two weeks time, the budget will process will begin and it'll take about three months to complete. Why now? What are you at? Now, and in fact, the timing of it is is, is even more important now because what became clear over the summer uh, was the way in which the government are setting up the finances for the budget mean that they won't be able to invest the kind of funds that are required to tackle the social and affordable housing crisis. So one of the primary reasons why we chose it now is to put the maximum level of pressure on government to deliver more in this budget. And I'm firmly of the view, and this isn't personal, uh, uh, but it's about uh, acknowledging the roles of ministers. I'm firmly of the view that Owen Murphy, on the basis of his record and his views expressed to date on housing policy, is now an obstacle to making the kinds of policy changes that we need. Uh, So first of all, this is about putting pressure on the government to deliver. It's also about saying, if we allow this government to continue in the way they're doing, if we allow them off the hook in this budget, as it looks like Fianna Fáil will do, then things are going to get worse. And again... So you didn't want to bring the government down? What we wanted was, this was a motion of no confidence, if you read the text, Owen Murphy Mm -hmm. and Rebuilding Ireland. And in fact, there's no reason why there would have been an election. If the majority of, of Dáil TDs had had the courage of their convictions to say, the failing minister has to go and his failing housing plan has to go and budget 2019 hmm, But Fianna Fáil has a commitment not to vote in that way under well, its confidence and supply agreement. Had it voted in that way, the confidence see, and supply this, agreement would be null and void. That's not the case. Me- so, for example, when, when there was the controversy with the former Minister for Justice, Francis Fitzgerald, in fact, Micheál Martin made it very clear at that stage that she had to go again under yes. pressure from, from uh, Sinn Féin. But what I'll say is this, the real issue for Fianna Fáil is as follows. Uh, Micheál Martin doesn't have uh, the strength to stand up to Leo Varadkar. Uh, he doesn't have the strength to call... Well, he did Gale on that Bluff. issue, didn't he? And, and, but on, on this issue, on an issue which is affecting tens of thousands of people all over the country, including in counties Louth and Meath, Fianna Fáil doesn't have the courage of a conviction. So here's what it did last night. It said the government is failing on housing. It said the minister is failing. It said rebuilding Ireland wasn't working. But it made it clear that they're going to allow things to continue as they are. They're going to leave the minister in place. They're going to leave rebuilding Ireland in place. And I'm saying this, in terms of how the government has set up the finances for budget 2019, they cannot meet the level of demand that's there. We will outline tomorrow in great detail our alternative capital and policy plan, as we did last year and the year before. But let's not forget what this is about. Mm. This isn't about uh, uh, TDs in the Dáil. 
This is about the 4,000 children, including many children uh, in your own counties where your listeners are from, uh, who tonight are in emergency accommodation. And the fact that month on month, the number of children is increasing. This is about the almost doubling of over 65s in emergency Mm. accommodation. Uh, And again, I was looking, for example, at the government's targets uh, for social and affordable housing for Louth and Meath. Uh, And over the next three years, if this plan continues as Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are proposing, they will meet less than a quarter of the social housing demand in counties Louth and Meads. And there are no proposals on the table at the moment for affordable rental or purchase homes for working families in your counties. Now, if Micheál Martin uh, and his TDs are happy to stand over that, that's their business. Our job is to hold the government to account, propose alternatives and represent the people who are being left behind by this Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael coalition. But we and saw that's the what we did last Simon night and I stand over it 100%. Government. Sure, we saw the Simon community yesterday talking about the delay in agreeing to fund and provide housing and delivering that housing and that it can take a couple of years before people Absolutely. get the keys to move into these houses. And the Taoiseach was talking about 14,000 incidents last year where people got keys and moved into new homes a 50% increase on the year before. 20,000 houses will be built this year. Uh, by 2020, that'll be up to 25 and 30,000 every year after that, he said. It has to be given time, in other words. Well, first of all, uh, this government have been in office for seven long years. Uh, but also, let's look carefully at the figures that Tisha quoted. So the total increase in the social housing stock owned by local authorities and approved housing bodies last year was just over 6,000. This year, it'll be just over 5,000. That's half what the cross-party uh, Dáil Housing and Homeless Committee recommended two years ago. Uh, uh, also look what's being built. For example, all across Dublin there are, are purpose-built student accommodation and family homes being built. But it's costing uh, students €1,000 a month for the student accommodation. And the homes that are being built in Dublin and Cork and elsewhere, uh, as well as around the commuter belt, are three hundred and twenty to €500,000. So supply in and of itself, if it's not meeting social and affordable uh, housing need, isn't going to solve the problem. And again, I go back to the central point. Look at the targets. Uh, At the moment, for example, in Louth, there's about 4,896 families who have a social housing need between the council list and those in Hap and Raz. But the uh, government is only funding 1,074 units up till 2021. In Meads, real social housing need is at 4,919 families. But the government is only funding 1,190 new social homes between now and 2021. And again, not a single affordable home to rent or purchase for working families has been delivered by government. So if you live in areas that have increasing rents and increasing house prices, mm-hmm. whether that's, for example, some of your commuter belt or Drogheda or Dundalk, you are increasingly locked out of being able to secure uh, affordable uh, uh, and safe housing, even when you're in decent employment. So is this plan working? No, it's not. That's why all the figures are going in the wrong direction. And again, I make no apology for holding this government and this minister to account and for the Taoiseach to get on the floor of the doll and simply spread mistruths about mm. Sinn Féin's support for social housing when it's his councillors that are blocking social housing across the country. Well, he's been doing that continuously, Fianna hasn't he? Uh, and, and I mean, he, I he, made, him, he, he made the point yesterday, uh, whatever about challenging him on blocking no, no, social I housing. I don't to name a single social housing project anyway okay. that we have blocked in the last five years because there isn't one. Okay, uh, but he, he did raise the issue of property tax and the yep. Sinn Féin policy across the country to reduce the rate of property tax by 15%, money which could be otherwise used for housing. Well, two important things to say on that. So, for example, in in two local authorities where Sinn Féin is the lead party, South Dublin and Dublin City, we've maintained the the property tax at its lower level for the last three years. And that's the right policy because struggling families on, on modest incomes, families in negative equity, families in mortgage distress cannot afford an increase in their taxes. So we haven't cut it. We've maintained it at the lower level. 
But also, uh, uh, property tax is not the correct vehicle for funding social housing. That should come from loans from the Housing Finance Agency, European Investment Bank, and direct exchequer revenue. And for example, if we had have increased the property tax uh, on modest income families in South Dublin County Council, for example, uh, where, where I live and where mm. Sinn Féin is the largest party, that wouldn't have built uh, very many houses, but it would have pushed families who are under already significant financial strain further into difficulty. So I think we've done the right thing by the property tax. The real issue well, is this. Every, every year look since at, the introduction look, of the property tax... We uh, have maintained should, it at the lower level. Sinn Féin has sought to reduce it by 15% no, in loud and in mead. Absolutely, and we should, we should have it at the lower level for struggling families. But I go back to my point. Even if we increase the property tax in all of the local authorities where we're in a lead position, the targets for social housing are set by the department. And if you look at Louth, if you look at Mead, the targets will only meet a quarter of the demand. That's not the fault of councillors from any political party. It's because government is not allowing local authorities to develop on the scale that's required. It's not allowing local authorities to develop anything more than small infill sites. And in mm-hmm. fact, I was talking to my colleague Imelda Munster, who's one of your local TDs, uh, only yesterday, and she was saying that there's a site in her constituency, uh, public land that could fit 600 houses. Uh, and what's the government talking about doing? Selling it to a private developer to have just 10% social and 20 or 30% affordable, rather than having the entire development as social, affordable rental and affordable purchase homes to meet local need. That's what this government's uh, housing policy is about. That's why it's failing. And that's why more and more adults, children and pensioners are slipping into the tragedy of homelessness. And and I'm not going to allow that to go uh, uncriticised in in the Dáil any time while I'm there. All right. Well, despite your criticism, there was uh, strong support from the government for Owen Murphy with eight ministers flanking the minister yesterday. If uh, there was a a weak link, it was Catherine Byrne uh, who voted in favour of the government. So what next? Well, first of all, only 37% of TDs uh, voted confidence in Owen Murphy and the government's plan. Uh, and that speaks volumes. So what's, what do we need to do now? Well, the first thing is, is next uh, Wednesday, there are two very important events here in, in Leinster House. There's a cross-party motion outlining the kind of policy alternatives and increased investment that's required to tackle the crisis. 47 TDs from a range of opposition parties, including ourselves, will debate and vote on that. And at the same time, outside the Dáil, the single largest uh, coalition demanding change in government policy since Together for Yes and Marriage Equality will assemble the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, supported by a plethora of NGOs, homeless organisations and uh, housing rights groups, 12.30 outside the Dáil on October the 3rd, demanding radical change in housing. And this is going to be the beginning of a major campaign, because listen, if you're walking around any part of this country, you will hear more and more families and more and more people describing how they're unable to access secure and affordable accommodation. And I think what we're going to see is more and more mobilizations, more and more public protest, anger, and more opposition, but also credible alternatives being proposed on the floor of the Dáil. And if the government wasn't willing to listen to us in the opposition last night, they sure as hell will be listening to the growing numbers of people who mobilise uh, left out by this government's failed housing policies. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Oh no, Bren is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on housing planning and local government. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Next month, uh, the Minister for Health is to bring forward the Human Tissues uh, Bill, which will allow for opt-out organ donation. Under this new law, it will be assumed that when you die, you've agreed agreed to donating your organs, unless you've uh, registered otherwise before your death. We're joined by Mark Murphy, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Kidney Association. Good morning to you, Mark, and thanks for joining us. Obviously, the hope here is that there will be increased donations. What do you believe will be the outcome? Well, um, you know, I think it's great that the minister is getting around to this piece of legislation. It's been, let's say, hanging around for a number of administrations. Um, we need extra resources put into organ donation. We need to help the intensive care units. We need donor coordinators on the ground and this legislation will bring that. Now, I don't believe for a minute that the consent issue, changing the consent issue, or renaming it, as I believe it is, um, will really help at all. Um, The situation is we have informed consent. Uh, Well, people informed and make the, the, the decision and that's what the family are doing. And indeed, with this legislation, that's exactly what's going to happen as well. There is not going to be a presumption of consent made at all, um, because the intensivists have made it very clear that they won't operate such a system. And that's fine. That happens in right across Europe. There's laws about... That, may, that, that makes the proposal sound pointless. That element of it is, yes. Now, we would favour, the minister wants to put a no registry so that people who object can have a registry to object. We would like a positive registry as well, a yes registry. Mm. But we have that to some extent, don't we? People can carry an organ donor card or tick the box on their licence, as the case may be. People can make their wishes known. But even at that, those wishes can be overridden by their family. Yeah, well, let's go back to we don't have a registry. Um, you, know, you get your donor card. We don't keep your data. You hold the donor card. You you say yes on your driver's license. The road safety authority or the transport minister for transport has that data. The Department of Health doesn't. Mm. We we know there are eight hundred thousand people who would say yes to organ donation, but the Department of Health don't know that. There's no. It hasn't transferred from. Transport to health. That's what we do. That's the registry we're looking for. Okay, but as things stand, uh, even if people make their wishes known, family members can decide afterwards that they don't want their organs to be donated. Correct. I I agree with you there, and that's the exact same position that will be um, after this legislation. I do favour something that is uh, going on in the USA, um, which is if you say yes. That is consent. And that the family are told that the hospital has the consent through the driver's license. I think there's a merit in that. But I'm just happy enough to have a, a positive registry out of this new legislation. But um, the minister's only looking for the negative registry. And I think as this legislation goes through the various houses, that's that will evolve as being a very practical thing to do. Uh, you've always been uh, opposed to assumed consent, I think. 
presumed, yeah. Which, which, this is the notion that is coming with this legislation. And, but in practice, I don't believe it will be presumed at all because right across Europe, number, well, not all of Europe, but a number of countries, including Wales, went to the presumed consent. If you say no on a Welsh registry, your family is asked anyway whether that no is the latest thinking or and the family can change the no to a yes. Hmm. So, so the family has the final word, in other words, regardless. And that's always going to be the case. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment, Mark. Thank you indeed for joining us. Mark Murphy, Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Kidney Association. Now, it's Wednesday morning, meaning the local newspapers are available to you and to us indeed. And Marie Kearns is here with the front pages and you'll begin in Mead for us this week, Marie. I am indeed, Michael, and it's the Mead Chronicle, of course. And on their front page, the headline is 400 extra guardie are needed in Mead. Noel Finnegan is reporting that an additional 400 Gardaí are needed in the county to allow the force to reach the same level of policing as counties of similar size such as Limerick. Yet Meath got the grand total of just five new recruits last Friday. The story quotes local Fianna Fáil TD Shane Castles who says that the force in Meath needs an immediate emergency boost in numbers to allow it to tackle the real threats now posed to every corner of the county adding that it was now the worst resourced in terms of both manpower and the physical condition of all 16 stations. All right, and uh, we'd Jed Nash in with us yesterday saying that the Fine Gael Labour government made a terrible mistake in terms of local government. Uh, this is on the front of the Drada Independent, although they're taking a slightly different twist on it. That's right, uh, Michael. Time to get the power back is the lead story of the Drada Independent and the power they're referring to is of course the local council and it's it's covering the story about legislation being brought to the doll today in a bid to bring Drogheda back to being a seat of power as the paper reports. The Labour Party is re- proposing the move but will need cross-party support and if passed, say Senator Gerald Nash, there would be a new Drogheda Council with 15 members which would be responsible for Drogheda and its environment and would see the full restoration of all its functions. Right, and the Drogheda leader is giving some attention to this story as well. That's right, and they have some reaction in their story from Sinn Féin TD Imelda Munster, who has dismissed the bill as a publicity stunt, claiming that the sole purpose of it is to pretend that they are trying to undo the damage that they have done. Isn't that what Jed Nash said? <laughs> and in, inside the Drogheda leader, Michael, there's also an interesting opinion piece by Des Grant on the rental crisis in the town that's worth having a read of. Uh, to, to the Dog Democrat then, if Oh I can yeah, go. that's uh, one of the main papers in Stab City. They used to call Limerick Stab City and uh, I think Dundalk is now taking up the title. Well, on a more serious note, I suppose they are talking about the spate of knife attacks in the town, which I suppose has really shocked local people and is a huge cause of concern. And Councillor Conor Keeling, chairperson of the Municipal District of Dundalk, is insisting that this is not representative of the Dundalk population at large and should be condemned in the strongest manner possible. Inside also, Michael David Lynch is writing that the rape crisis in the North East is set to open its doors at a new premises on the Carrickmacross Road in Dundalk. Grace McArdle, manager of the Rape Crisis North East, told the Democrat that the new premises will not only enable
enable them to progress and expand in their specialist field of work, but also facilitate them to see more clients as a result of additional rooms. So that's a, a good news story for those who are needing those okay, services. Going back to the stabbings that have taken place in Dundalk, uh, one of them was a, a fatal stabbing and resulted in uh, the terrible story last week of how a 31-year-old woman lost her life. The Argus is focusing on this and uh, a little bit uh, about uh, Ingrida and her life. That's right, and Michael. They are, I suppose, her funeral sadly is taking place this morning, Michael, and the Argus is reporting on that and also that members of the local Lithuanian community and the townspeople in Dundalk, shocked at her death, launched a fundraising campaign to cover the cost of the burial and to care for her young children. Margaret Roger reports that the young mother, who came to Dundalk just eight years ago, has no family members apart from an elderly aunt in Lithuania and that her two children are now being cared for by friends since her death. Okay, and more on that in the Dundalk leader. Yes, they are also leading with the efforts to give Ingrida a fitting farewell. A story on page 10 also caught my eye, Michael, about how just one tenant has been evicted from their council house over the past five years as a result of the local authorities' antisocial behaviour policy. While, while interestingly, a total of 17 tenants only have been put on a final warning during the same period of time. All right, well, that's uh, the stories on the front pages of uh, the papers uh, this morning in uh, your local news agents. And I'm sure some people might want to comment on some of those stories uh, or something else they've been hearing, or for that matter, if there's an issue they'd like to raise with us, because you'll be back with some of uh, the I will comments indeed. that we get in the next few minutes, in a few minutes' time. Thanks for that, Marie. Uh, and if you would like to make comment, our telephone number, as always, is 18. 57 Michael Reed on LMFM. Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash is making news uh, this week because, as we've been hearing, he wants to undo the terrible damage the Labour Party did in deciding to abolish town and borough councils. The Senator is also making news uh, this week after being accused yesterday of scandalously misleading the public about the Christmas bonus not being available to welfare recipients. This follows stories in the Mirror and the Examiner yesterday and it's an issue that was raised at the Oireachtas Social Protection Committee hearing. Uh, Regina Doherty has assured people that the bonus will be paid this year. We're joined by Breed O'Brien, Head of Policy and Media with the INOU, the Irish National Organisation of the Unemployed. Breed, uh, were you concerned at the stories in the papers and what do you think is going on here? Yeah, we were concerned, certainly, yeah, when we saw the headlines. Um, though normally the Christmas bonus, the fact that it will be paid, I usually associate that announcement with Budget Day itself. So we're still two weeks off Budget Day. Um, and so we would certainly be expecting the Christmas bonus to be paid. I see in subsequent uh, uh, media coverage, both the Minister and the Taoiseach have assured people that it will. Yeah. I think she has a concern as to where she'll find the money, but hopefully she'll find the money. Um, the past two years, it's been paid at 85%, and we would like to see that, you know, been paid at 100%, because we're conscious of that those who receive it, by and large, social welfare is their only source of income, 
And as we all know, Christmas can be a very expensive time of year. So it certainly would be great to see it you know, being restored to 100%. And generally what happens at these Oireachtas Committee hearings is that in this case, the Minister goes in and makes a, a statement, a, a prepared statement, a statement that is written beforehand uh, and that that statement is sent on to the members in advance so they can mull it over. And apparently the statement said there's currently no provision for a Christmas bonus in the department's allocation for 2018. And then this led to questions. The minister was wondering if Jed Nash was misleading the press. Jed Nash said he was contacted by two separate journalists, uh, which does seem peculiar given how many members there are on that committee that both journalists would decide to contact just one member. Well, I, to be honest with you, on that side of things, I, 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 I don't know as to how it, it, it got out. Um, I, I mean, basically, I suppose currently, yes, Minister may not have provision, but as I said, I would normally I normally associate the Christmas bonus and its announcement and the funding for its announcement been announced on the budget day before it gets paid. And it's always one of the big headlines, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So in many respects, I just you know when when I saw other coverage, I saw okay, so people took one line where she's saying something that currently is factually correct, and hopefully by the ninth of October would turn out that indeed she has the money and she will be paying the Christmas bonus. And it used to be a case that you got an extra week's dole or an extra week's pension payment or whatever your welfare benefit was uh, and of course it was uh, abolished, restored by half and uh, I think it was back up to 85%. Yeah, the past two years it's been 85%. So yes, during the crisis it it was stopped and then it has started to be reintroduced uh, uh, in percentages and we would like to see it back up to 100%. So that's what we are calling for in our pre-budget submission, that it will be back at 100%. And the logic of giving people an extra week's money, I suppose is understandable to most of us. Uh, It's an expensive time of year for all of us. Indeed it is. And, And we would be conscious that, you know, for a lot of people, welfare is their only source of income. So certainly it is a very welcome payment and it allows people to be able to manage what is an expensive time of year. So we certainly would like to see it restored to 100%. We would be astonished if it wasn't announced at at, at, at least 85% on budget day. Um, and we are confident that the Minister and the Minister for Finance and Public Expenditure will find the, fu- the funds to be able to pay it on, uh, uh, you know, in time, good time for Christmas. And ha- have you any idea of uh, what it would cost to go the extra 15%? Not off the top of my head, Michael, no. But a, a relatively uh, yeah. small amount of money, I gather. It's relatively, yeah, it, it certainly is manageable. Yes, it is manageable. Um, and I, you know, and I think, I mean, by and large, I think as with most social welfare payments, the money ends up back in the economy. So it ends up coming back to the state anyway in, in a variety of, of, of ways. So it's, cert- it's not, it's, it, it's money that sort of gets spent and gets circulated and, and you know, gets used. And it comes back to this, you know, the, the government through VAT receipts and other and, and other ways. So it's it's kind of it goes out with one hand, but they certainly get it back with the other in a fairly short period of time. Okay, well, whatever the confusion, I'm sure there is some relief. We leave it there for the moment, and thank yeah. you indeed for joining us, Breed O'Brien, head of policy and media with the INOU, the Irish National Organisation for the Unemployed. Now let's go back to the debate on housing and indeed confidence in the Minister Owen Murphy, as you know, Sinn Fein tabled a motion of no confidence in Owen Murphy and 
uh, the minister was in fighting form. Here was his rebuttal. More new homes will be provided this year than in any year in the past decade. Over 20,000 new places to live will be delivered. Still, we have more to do. My job as minister is to get it done. But I won't be distracted by populist nonsense that contributes nothing to the challenges that we face. And I won't be hounded out of office by personalised ad campaigns and personalised attacks against me. I know people are hurting, Cancorla. I know they are. But if we ignore the progress that, that has been made, if we ignore it for political gain, or to try and feed some sort of public outrage or outcry for our own political benefit. If we do that, then we risk making the mistakes of the past. The minister said he knew that people were hurting, as you heard, and he gave one example after speaking to a woman who was living in one of the homeless hubs. She told me her own personal story through tears because she felt ashamed about the situation that she was in. And I apologised to her because she had to spend three weeks in a hotel. should never have been in that hotel. And we were talking in the hub that she was now in, and she was finding that difficult. She was. But I was able to tell her that she'd be in a home soon, and I was able to tell her that because every family that had gone into that hub since it had been opened less than a year ago had gone into a home. That's Owen Murphy, the minister speaking to that debate, a Sinn Féin motion of no confidence in him and the government, but not everyone was buying the Sinn Féin argument. Indeed, Fine Gael TD in Meath East and Minister Regina Doherty had much to say about Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin have no policy except hypocrisy. They call for houses to be built as if they had magic beans. Well, your magic beans didn't work in Northern Ireland and your hypocrisy and policy of spin will not work down here, lads and ladies. Get your act together. Bring forward a policy and a plan that actually would potentially be an objective to what we're in. That's Regina Doherty speaking in that debate last night. Sinn Féin also critical of Fianna Fáil, as we've been hearing, and how Fianna Fáil is critical of government policy, but continues to support the government. Uh, Fianna Fáil has been critical of Sinn Féin as well. Shane Castles, uh, Fianna Fáil TD in Mead West, directed his fire at his constituency colleague, Padder Tobin, the local Sinn Féin TD, who didn't turn up when social houses were being opened in at Boy. And it was a great day for the families who received the keys to their new homes. And it was a privilege to join them on the day. But where was Sinn Féin Deputy Pader Tobin when this moment of positive action was happening? Not in the estate. Oh no, no, no. I'll tell you where this guy was in the Sinn Féin party. I went 200 yards around the corner, Giancarla, and there he was with a bundle of leaflets on the street in that boy handing out Sinn Féin diatribe and propaganda. There you go. It was a heated debate, as you've been hearing. We'll be hearing more about that, no doubt, in the next hour and plenty more to come on this morning's programme. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning to you, Michael, and to all our listeners. Ellen text in just in relation to your interview at the top of the show with Sinn Féin's Owen O'Brien. And she says it's all hot air as usual from our TDs and ministers on the housing. It's such a waste of time. People just can't afford to buy or rent. So sort it out, says Alan. <laughs> right, well, they all say they can. Uh, and I suppose that's the, uh, the, the, the objective of uh, the debate. And it's up to us to decide which one uh, is actually uh, in a position to do that. 
Tom from Drogheda is feeling annoyed this morning, Michael. And the reason for that is that what's annoying him is when people call the motion of no confidence a publicity stunt. Tom says, I'm not a Sinn Féin supporter by any means, but they are an, an opposition party and their job is to take the government to task if it is not, if the government is not doing its job. In my humble opinion, says Tom, the government is not doing its job and therefore should be challenged. The Sinn Féin party is right to put pressure on the government, even even though the motion was defeated, at least they are keeping the minister on his toes. Unlike Fianna Fáil, who are all talk. I don't want to hear any of Fianna Fáil complaining about the housing crisis when they are propping up Fine Gael, says Tom. All right. Well, uh, I suppose the reason it's been called a publicity stunt is that it was destined to fail. And yes. the uh, idea was to bring about a, an election. And uh, here we are. And uh, the government remains in office. The Labour Party, a texter in the UK, is going to introduce a second home holiday home tax to be ring-fenced for the homeless. Maybe that's something we could do here in Ireland. Okay. 20 beautiful social houses have been given out in Belbriggan, but only two went to people who are Irish nationals, says another texter. Michael, you're up to your usual behaviour, says Deirdre from Navin. When a Sinn Féin representative is on, you give lots of uninterrupted time, gentle questioning and none of the usual sneering. This text probably won't be read out so much for a non-biased presenter, says Deirdre. All right, thanks for that, Deirdre. Always good to get the feedback. Let's turn our attention to another story because as you've been hearing uh, this morning, children as young as five with disabilities are being secluded and restrained in schools and we're joined by Sarah Lennon, Communications and Information Manager with Inclusion Ireland. Uh, This is on foot of a report that is uh, to be published today by Inclusion Ireland, which tells the stories of some 14 children with a disability. And some of those stories, as I understand it, Sarah, are quite disturbing. Good morning. Yes, um, very disturbing, as you said. Children as young as five and six years old who have been locked into rooms or, or physically restrained um, or put into t- to time out spaces etc for, for very long periods of time during the school day and, and I suppose what the report is, is trying to do today is just to shine a light really on those individual stories because as far as we're concerned this is only the tip of the iceberg with incidents like this. And one of those children in a room unattended for up to five hours. So the bulk of the school day so uh, you know you, you get a sense from the stories that in a lot of cases children were put in these rooms as a matter of course just in case there was any behaviour that needed to be managed um, and when a child is experiencing that level of, of exclusion from, from the classroom, from their peers um, that does absolutely nothing to, to, to support that child to you know, to behave or to feel a part of the school hmm. um, and so really just to, to put any human being into a room for five hours uh, with nothing, no one to talk to and, and no supervision, um, let alone a very young child, is, is completely inappropriate. Well, it would seem cruel at worst, uh, inappropriate at best, uh, and yeah. people would imagine that there would be guidelines and that would be a breach of the guidelines, but in fact, there aren't guidelines. There aren't, and, and they've been, the Department of Education have been asked three times in, in recent um, years for, for guidelines. Um, and there's guidelines and other types of services. So when we think about health services or mental health services or disability services that aren't education, there there is guidelines and it's 
very tightly restricted what people can do. But within the education sphere, because of the nature of our schools, um, each school ha- having its own policies and procedures, there's there's no national guidelines. Um, we're calling very strongly on the Department of Education to issue those guidelines and we're encouraged that they have indicated today that they're doing that. But at the same time, while we're encouraged by that, it's, it's not, not ahead of time that, that they would put these guidelines in place. Right. One of the children, one of the 14 children that you're reporting on today, uh, had their held, head held down between their knees for 20 minutes on a, a bus journey. Uh, again, cruel, inappropriate, uh, in breach of guidelines, all of these things we could talk about. Uh, but uh, let's begin. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Again, at the beginning, if you like, how did you hear about this? Inclusion Ireland, it, we're an advocacy organisation, so we, we receive hundreds of calls every year and, and you know, we noticed that there was a number of trends appearing and um, so people calling us about an incident such as that but there was too many of them to be mm. a one-off incident there was too many of them to be an isolation um response by maybe somebody who didn't have the appropriate training so um you know we took a decision to, to put out some feelers through our networks to see you know where people experiencing this on a large scale and 14 families came forward but even just looking at the social media response today mm. we know there's a lot more out there Um, And, you know, we do know that people are afraid to speak up and and absolutely understand. But but, 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 uh, am I right in thinking, Sarah, the answer to my question is uh, the children and their parents have told you you haven't learned from the schools or the Department of Education about these types of interventions? Correct, absolutely. And I suppose just to be very clear, um, you know, Inclusion Ireland isn't saying that, that this is, you know, a teacher's problem we're saying that teachers need support around this and special needs assistance and people who accompany people on the buses that really these practices are a risk for everybody um and people need to be trained in how to support positive behavior how to de-escalate situations that are maybe becoming difficult um, and that restraint and seclusion as in other countries 
should only ever happen where there's a genuine risk to mm. life and limb um, and not in any other circumstance. It wouldn't okay. be tolerated in other yeah. arenas. But you are um, talking, you are, uh, I, I, again, I can only assume, but I assume you're talking uh, about children who show challenging behaviour uh, and quite often an intervention will be required. But how an intervention happens uh, and if that intervention is appropriate is another thing but we're in the dark because this is not being recorded uh, there is no data on it and there are no guidelines apart from anything else exactly and and as i said another another type of um another service is the mental health service they'd have to make a record so that patterns could be you know ascertained very easily um, if a service was overusing restraint, for example, or it seemed to be, you know, have a very high um, incidence of restraint, then other supports could be brought in, other solutions could be brought forward. We don't have any data like that because all we have is, at the moment anyway, is these 14 uh, individual stories and the other, th- other stories that people are beginning to tell us. We really do need the Department of Education to take some responsibility for this. Um, before somebody gets very seriously hurt, mm. that could be a, it's very likely to be a child, but it, it could also be any other person who is working or attending the school, depending on whether the person who's, who's performing the restraint, for example, mm. has any training at all. Um, there's a very serious risk, I think, to, to children in particular by this practice. And it's probably leaving those people vulnerable themselves, the people who are charged with the care of these children, the, ch- the people who are intervening uh, and restraining the children uh, could end up... Uh, Sorry for uh, the consequence of what they've done. Uh, and listening to you this morning, uh, I think it's disturbing and upsetting for a lot of us, uh, but it'll probably be all the more so later in the day and undoubtedly we'll be hearing more about these stories uh, because some of uh, the parents and uh, their children will be at the launch and we'll be hearing directly from them. All right, Sarah, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Sarah Lennon, Communications and Information Manager with Inclusion Ireland. Let's go back to more of your comments. Marie, what else have you got? Lots of them coming in, Michael. Mark Murphy, we had on from the Irish Kidney Association and responding to that interview, we had a text from Eric who says, Hi, Michael, the best and fairest way to encourage people to donate their organs when they die is to give them money to sign over their organs before they die. He feels there would be no shortage of organs then. But it's the family who have the last word. So <laughs> it's the family who would have to be paid if that uh, uh, logic is to be followed. Another listener says that it makes sense to me to have an opt-out legislation in relation to organ donation. None of us know when either we or a member of our family might need an organ and I think this is a very good idea. There's some concern, Michael, too, this morning in relation to the Christmas bonus. We had two listeners in touch and just texting to say, would you please find out if the Christmas bonus will be paid this year? Yes, it will. It will. And Deirdre rang in and she's she also wanted to make the point that people don't know what's happening. We look forward to this every year and we need to to know if we are going to get it or not. Apologies if there's been confusion. There's uh, been confusion uh, because of a sentence in a prepared written statement that the Minister was to give to the Oireachtas Committee yesterday. When she spoke to the committee yesterday, she said the payment will be made. There will be a Christmas bonus. We don't know at what rate uh, it will be at and we won't know until Budget Day. Last comment then to John in Navin, who was listening to the review of the newspapers and was listening to 
the comments from Shane Castles, Deputy Shane Castles, in relation to the need for 400 extra Gardaí in Meath. And John is saying, I cannot believe that statement coming from Shane Castles, who I know personally, because when Fianna Fáil were in power, they closed Templemore for a couple of years. There was no recruitment and there was no extra Gardaí on the streets. Okay, thanks for that. And uh, thanks for bringing us all of those comments, Marie, for that matter. As always, if you'd like to add to what's been said, our telephone number 185715958. Marie and Maggie are taking calls on that number 185715958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Has the Public Accounts Committee done something that might influence the outcome of the presidential election? I think the answer could possibly be yes, and I'll explain that in a a moment. But this hinges around a €317,000 allowance, which is given to the office of the president. It's a payment that was raised by Fianna Fáil TD Mark McSharry, and Deputy McSharry said he, he didn't want to talk about it in the context of President Higgins, but let's hear what transpired. It's a payment, I think, for 2017, the figure is 317,000. 317,000. It's a payment under the Presidential Establishment um, Presidential Establishment Act 1938 uh, as amended. Okay, so the Presidential uh, Establishment Act, a payment under that of 317,000 in terms of 2017. It's, it's an allowance. That's an allowance for the okay. president. Yeah. Oh, sorry. So that so it's remuneration then, is it? No, it's an well, it's an allowance. Yeah, in the. F- well, it's not pensionable. Um, right. It's not a salary. It's not a salary. It's an it's, allowance. It's, it's not expensive. It's an allowance. An allowance. And, and you don't audit that? I don't audit that. 317000 per year. It's an, you're saying it's an allowance, but it's not remuneration. So, um, so in 10 years, that's £3.2 or thereabouts. Obviously, yeah. yeah. So do we know what it's used for? Is it, is it, does that act prescribe? No, the President's it, doesn't, act, it doesn't prescribe what it's used for. Okay, so 317,000 per year allowance, not audited, we don't know what it's used for, and it's not prescribed in law. Is that correct? The purpose is not prescribed in law. All right, and uh, the purpose of it is uh, undoubtedly decided by the office of the president. Uh, but we've been hearing about three hundred and seventeen thousand euro or three point two million euro, and uh, that it's not audited. Nobody knows what it's spent on. Mark McSharry went on to describe it as a slush fund. And if you look at the newspapers today, the coverage is interesting. The editorial in the Independent talks about headline chasing can't be mistaken for scrutiny, and that the dull public. Accounts Committee is the watchdog that just spends its time barking at passing cars. A welcome insight into spending at the Auras is the headline over an opinion piece in the Irish Times. It's front page says President's 317,000 allowance unaudited. No transparency on how Auras spends extra 317,000, the front page of the Irish Examiner. And the Daily Mail uh, takes it up a gear. 317,000 Aura's money put under scrutiny allowances on top of 249,000 salary and is not audited. The salary obviously applies to the incumbent president. And this is where the coverage goes downhill in terms of whether this story is going to have any influence on the campaign. We'll go to the mirror. Presidents, 317,000 party in the park 
with a photograph of Michael D. Higgins. The Mirror says presidents, 317,000 spend in secret on parties and functions. Inside that paper, it says 317,000 slush fund for the president. And the Irish Daily Star says Higgins tucks extra 300,000 tax-free in his or his pocket. We're joined by Sean Defoe, our political correspondent. Sean, what will be the fallout of any from this? I think the fallout is going to depend on how Michael D. actually explains how this money is spent when he does his launch later. He's no doubt going to be asked about it. But the, I think the issue over it was that this is quite simply a fund that we didn't know about at all. It's been there since 1998, established in law then. There's been a certain allowance paid to the President, of course, since the office was established, which Mm. is this one, um, as well as his salary. But in 1998, it increased to about €317,000 is what we heard. And there has been no accountability on it since. I think what was stark yesterday in the Public Accounts Committee meeting was just how little oversight of spending was done. So this particular... A fund or allowance or whatever you want to call it can't be audited by the state public spending watchdog, the controller and auditor general, can't be audited by the government. So neither of them mm. have any idea what it's spent on. When we look at the ORIS audit committee then, that was only initially ever set up in 2014 for the first time. So there was no audits before that. And then because of a personal uh, circumstance in the life of the chairman of that committee, it didn't sit for two years. So there was between 2014 and 2016, there were no audits done of the accounts there. But and what about the timing of these on. questions? And they may be legitimate questions, but the timing, I think, is very questionable. Is it possible that the Public Accounts Committee has acted unconstitutionally in that it has raised questions about Michael D. Higgins? And Michael D. Higgins is now on the front pages putting money in his pocket, according to the headlines, and spending it on parties. Well, that's what I think this was partially designed for when people started calling for it over the summer, was a political effort to make some sort of a dig at Michael D. Higgins, and that's what a lot of people were objecting to. The unconstitutional matter is a different question, because under the Constitution, the President is sacrosanct from everybody, from Mm. the Oireachtas, from the Guards, from the press, from everyone, and that's something else, from the courts as well, and that's something that we need to actually have a look at in the conversation. But the timing, as you mentioned, is somewhat suspect. Do you have that conversation on the eve of the presidential election? But they've called into question uh, somebody who is not answerable to them uh, and has resulted, their questions has resulted in negative publicity on the first day of the presidential campaign. Yes, you would have to say that that is questionable, that to to do it at this time. But also, if uh, the flip side of that is, should the public not be aware of the spending that is going on when they're going into the ballot to vote for a certain president? And it mm. must be said as well, this particular allowance, it isn't just unique to Michael C. Higgins, it was mm. paid to Mary McAleese as well. Yep. And in fact, she turned over some of it. We're still a bit unclear about the nature of it, but it seems to be that it can't cruise. So at the end of her term as president, Mary McAleese returned. She gave back what was left. So yes. Exactly, yeah, she gave back the fund. And the way the, the reason it's being said on the front page is that this was spent on garden parties, etc., mm. because of the statement that the ORIS put out yesterday that basically what this money is used, everything that's not covered under 
the money they get from the exchequer. So yeah. that could include state dinners, it includes the functions of the Auris, it includes hospitality for the 20,000 visitors. Well, that many people that. go up to the Auris uh, and uh, are, are guests of the president. You have, president, you have dis- disabled groups go up. You, I, I think the president has hosted events with traveller groups and ethnic minorities uh, and different things like that. And we all know about it. We read it in the papers and it's on the television and all of that sort of thing. And it has to be paid for somehow. So yes, it is spent on parties, but the type of headlines that say the president is wasting it on parties or the impression that you get from those headlines is very misleading. It, well, it's, it's sensational tabloid journalism and we're always going to get that. And I think, unfortunately, that's going to be a hallmark of some of this campaign for certain people who want to sell papers. Let's, let's be honest about it. That is their modus operandi at the end of the day. What you have to do is take it in the round of the different reports and of what's going on. I mean, 317, the, the issue that I think we have at the moment is we don't know what it's spent on. Like, for 317,000 might not actually be enough. Who knows? You might need yep. more mm. to host all these different things. There mightn't be enough money there. The issue is we don't know the breakdown or what it's spent on. And I think everyone or the majority of people would agree that you want the president, he, you know, he is our representative mm. abroad. So when he hosts state dinner, you want the place looking well. You want a decent, you know, um, whatever kind of hors d'oeuvres are being put out. You want yep. the salmon to be good. You know, these kind of things. So you have to take all that into perspective. But then when you see headlines like that, I mean, that is, that's stirring and trying to sell a few papers. Well, that's the, and that's the point I'm making. And like you, I'd like to know uh, if we're getting value for our €317,000 because it is our money uh, that the president is spending on our behalf. And perhaps, as you say, it's not a, a enough. Uh, but I think the Public Accounts Committee have really uh, served uh, democracy badly in that the timing of this has led to these headlines uh, now on the first day of a presidential campaign. Negative headlines against the incumbent Michael D. Higgins. I also think the other side is, in my opinion, I would rather know about these payments and have him have the chance to answer it before I go into the ballot box and cast a vote. Because I think Rabos, for example, in the situation where he goes in and gets re-elected and a month after that, I'll suddenly question, oh, well, he's in there for seven years and he's, unconstitu- he's constitutionally untouchable. But what are these weird payments that are going on? So if there is nothing that is uh, anyway wrong with him and by the account of the Oris that there isn't and he'll get to give his own statement on it later and explain it then there's nothing wrong with that I, d- I doubt he even knows the it. answer to be honest I, I mean I imagine that's uh, I, I, civil I servants I uh, questioning who, a few officials today before he well that's the point you know get his answer. I, I imagine the decisions um, are made by civil servants and they know what the budget is and they arrange the events well, so that's what the point of, I mean, right, really up until this was mentioned by Mark Sharry yesterday, that committee yes, uh, meeting was, was quite dull. Yeah. There wasn't a finger being laid in them. They couldn't. The only accounts that were there were for 2016, which had already been in the public domain, and there was absolutely nothing questionable. So this was almost, a, a, by him, I think, clutching at straws for something to, to question on, and he happened to hit home on something that we didn't know about. So we are going to see Michael D. have to now defend that. It puts him on the back foot almost straight away going into this campaign. But, you know, how much it will actually influence the overall thing, we'll have to wait and see. I I don't think it will play too much of a role as long as there are adequate answers to the questions about how taxpayers' money is being spent. Okay, just very briefly before we let you go, uh, what now for Catherine Byrne uh, and indeed uh, the relationship uh, that she has with uh, the government? Uh, There was a, a lot of uncertainty going into the vote yesterday about what position she would take. 
yeah, it was very late season to devote the debate rather around emotional confidence and Owen Murphy had started last night when we heard what Catherine Byrne was going to do. She seems to have stuck an agreement with Leo Varadkar. They had a meeting for the vote to support the government to stay on what that deal was or what arrangement was. If there is such an arrangement, we don't actually know yet. So she has certainly raised her issues. She's looking after a constituency issue or trying to do that. So we'll have to see some explanation as to you know what arrangement they came to and what her uh, future with the, the party will be because this isn't the last time that housing is going to be raised as a serious issue in the Dáil. In terms of Owen Murphy, he was very robust last night in defending his record. Ministers rallied around him. It was quite a, a tetchy debate in the Dáil and really descended into quite a lot of party politics rather than actually talking about housing and the significant issue. So he survived this vote last night, but it's by no means pressure off him. Fianna Fáil were, they took the back seat and said, we're going to be responsible here and not collapse the government, but he has to go in now and negotiate with them on the budget. And really, if there isn't progress in a couple of months' time, tangible progress that he can point to and people can feel, because they can cite figures all they like until people actually feel it and see houses that are new houses up for sale, rent starting to come down or at least stabilise then there's going to be pressure on him so for now he keeps his role but uh, certainly um, I, I, the only wager I have Michael at the moment to be honest is whether Joseph Mourinho or Owen Murphy will lose their role first and uh, <laughs> I, I'm not entirely sure which way I'm swinging on that OK and I'm not giving you odds but thank you Sean for <laughs> joining us this morning our political correspondent Sean Defoe Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM, LMFM. The Dublin Simon community published its annual report yesterday highlighting how it supported 6,285 people as you'd expect in the Dublin region but the homeless charity also works with people in Wicklow, Kildare and Meath or at least that was the case last year with it expanding its services this year into Cavan, Monaghan and here in County Louth as well. We're joined by Anne-Marie Brennan, spokesperson for the Dublin Simon community. It's an incredible amount of people and I think it's equally true to say that you've helped an incredibly large number of people from staying out of emergency accommodation. Hi, uh, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having me on this morning. Um, yeah, that's correct. We worked with um, actually 22% more people um, last year than we did in 2016. However, that work is only really reflecting the need that's out there. We're increasing our workload and expanding our services as the need um, for more help and support and housing um, and the number of people who are just coming to our door um, who really need us. So that number is is really reflective of, of, of what's going on out there. And the headline figure of 1,300 households uh, who are not in emergency accommodation because of the support you've given to them uh, is a very worrying situation given that we've at least 10,000 people it would seem who are considered homeless in this country uh, but an effect that would rise to 13,000 if Simon wasn't there. That's correct. Yeah, we really focused on um, two main areas in 2017, um, keeping people in their homes, if they have a home, keeping them there, preventing them from going through the trauma of homelessness and going into emergency accommodation, whether they be singles or going into hotels, B&Bs, um, situation like that. So within that, um, we worked with about 631 adults and 449 children. And then what we also worked on the other side was to get people out of that situation. So if they had gone into emergency accommodation, if they had gone into homelessness, resettling them out of that. And there were big numbers. They were over um, there was about 1,006 adults and 1,028 children. So in total, um, 
those 1,300 households or over that equated to, yeah, about over 3,000 um, people. So it, it's a big impact when you consider there are so many just stuck in the revolving door of emergency accommodation and they have nowhere to go. So it's quite traumatic. It's quite stressful and impacts on your physical and your mental health um, untold consequences for children. So we really focused our work on that area. And you did mention that we expanded our service delivery into Cavan, Monaghan and Louth. And they are the areas that we're focusing on. It's the prevention side, um, keeping people in their homes. So we have teams out, out, you know, in the counties um, on the ground, really working to stop people from going into homelessness. Okay, and as you say, there's untold consequences on children and Mm -hmm. uh, nearly one and a half thousand children kept out of uh, emergency accommodation because of the work that you've been doing. Uh, That would have added to what is almost 4,000 children in emergency accommodation at the moment. Uh, Undoubtedly, there's great concern. It must be very difficult to work with children, whatever about anybody else who finds themselves in this situation. There's no doubt that the children are not responsible for the situation that they find themselves in. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, you know, children, they don't understand what's happening. They're being separated from their school, from their friends in school, from their families when they're being taken out of their communities. Um, so, again, the, the best thing that we can do is to keep people in their homes and prevention is key. Um, so, yeah, we would say in terms of helping people stay in their home and addressing problems in the rental market and stopping the influx into emergency accommodation. So, there's great work being done by local councils across the country to move people out of emergency accommodation. And we were part of that. As I said, we resettled, um, you know, over 1,000 adults and 1,000 children. However, it's so traumatic once they're in that situation and prevention is always the cure or better than the cure rather. So, um, you know, there's a big piece of work to keep people in their home. Uh, and it's a, a relatively new situation that we're providing emergency accommodation on such a, a grand scale to so many people. I think when we spoke about homelessness in years gone by, we'd have thought of street sleepers. Uh, but you mm-hmm. deal with a, a lot of rough sleepers. You also deal with addiction problems and provide counselling to people. And of the one and a half thousand rough sleepers that you did assist in the course of the last year, is it true to say that quite a, a lot of them would have had addiction problems or mental health problems? Yeah, well, when we when um, Dublin Simon Community set up, um, we're going to be commemorating our 50-year anniversary next year. So when we established, we focused on um, street work and on people who are rough sleeping and traditionally people who would have high support needs, you know, whether that be alcohol or drugs or mental health. And we've continued that. That's been our core client base um, over the last 50 years. However, as I explained at the um, beginning of the um, programme there, we've expanded based on needs. So as we see more families, more children, um, more housing required, we're delivering housing as well. Um, But yeah, we're continuing on that work. So our rough sleeper team are out 365 days of the year. Our soup run started um, 50 years ago and it's still going today. Um, we've also expanded our service into like treatment and health. Um, so we deliver detox services, we deliver recovery, um, counselling for mm. mental health. Um, it was a big focus of our work and we delivered over 2,000 hours of counselling um, to people who are in our services. So we we focus on, we still, our main focus um in addition to prevention and housing, we're also keen on our traditional client base or people who would have addiction or mental health um, and, and would be high support needs. 
And, you know, we hear arguments about the number of people who are homeless in this country, but it is impossible to quantify when you take those factors into account. Because I think some people would argue that a proportion of the prison population could be considered to be homeless because they've ended up in prison because of addiction or mental health problems. That's correct. It's actually very difficult to quantify when we talk about even emergency accommodation figures, and that's something that's reported on a monthly basis. And we're almost, unfortunately, up to 10,000. But that doesn't include the number of people who are rough sleeping across our towns and cities. That doesn't include people sleeping in squats. That doesn't include we have a terrible overcrowding situation at the moment where there is, you know, three generations of, of, of families maybe in one small house. And then there is women in refuges. And you mentioned then people who, you know, are in and out of prison and might go, you know, spend time, you know, back and forth. So it's it, that 10,000 when we talk about an emergency accommodation, it's really it's scratching at the surface. Um, our rough sleeper team um, are out on the streets in the morning in Dublin and we engage at rough sleepers um, and there has been additional emergency accommodation for them um, but there's still quite uh, a, a prevalent um, amount of people who are, are sleeping on our streets in, in, in Dublin alone mm. and it'd be quite, it can be quite hidden in different towns um, across the country as well um, who may, might not have that um, street engagement such as our service or there are always those nooks and crannies across the cities that people are you know sleeping in for safety that people might not come across them so you're dead right I mean we're we're scratching at the surface when we're looking at those homeless figures. Okay and when you talk about your service it's a very complicated services because of all the strands to it but undoubtedly an expensive service apart from the addiction treatment and the counselling and the rehousing and the other help that you give to people you're feeding people directly about a thousand times a day every day of the year giving out food parcels and so on Uh, how much uh, does it cost to provide the services through Dublin Simon? It's, yeah, you're correct. We have we employ um, nurses, counsellors, and um, we have care and case management workers that will engage with people to help them move on. We have people that are going into people's homes um, to provide support on that prevention piece. And we're also delivering our own housing stock as well. So in the absence of maybe social housing or people moving into the rental market with the support of HAP social um, welfare payment, we're delivering our housing as well. So it's it's a large organisation, um, and it it would cost you know about thirteen million to run the organisation each year. Mm, okay, it's an incredible amount of money. Incredible, uh, good work that you do, uh, but very important work uh, given the situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, and uh, I'm sure everybody would agree that uh, it is most regrettable that uh, it is on the scale that it is at the moment. But thank you indeed, Anne Marie, for joining us here this morning. Thank you very uh, much, Michael. Thank you, Anne Marie Brennan, spokesperson for the Dublin Simon community. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Please, God, that they have someone up during the weekend that they can start the work in progress, get back to a home for me and the kids. Words of desperation from Lorraine Mulready from St Finian's Park in Drogheda, who was suffering as a direct result of Loud County Council running out of money to fund maintenance or even emergency repairs in council houses. On August 5th last, the grandmother noticed a leak at her home, which appeared to be coming from a toilet cistern. But remarkably, it was only on Friday last, seven weeks after the leak was first reported, that the council got someone out to fix it. The damage caused to the home in the meantime has been far-reaching and devastating, and with no money in the council coffers, Lorraine fears 
having to live in a house that is not now fit for purpose. I caught up with Lorraine at her home yesterday and saw for myself how it has been destroyed, as you can hear from this report. Lorraine, I'm aghast here looking at the ceiling in your sitting room, which has just more or less fallen in. Go back to what happened. I had a leak on the 5th of August and it was bank holiday weekend so I couldn't get through to the corporation till the 7th and I rang and told them straight away 9 o'clock that morning and they said they'd send someone up. Two weeks later I was notified to be no money for repairs and seven weeks and it's still the ceiling actually fell down on top of me and the two children. So seven weeks ago you contacted them first you were told there'd be somebody out and then after two weeks you got the message we've no money left for this. No money whatsoever, not just for my repairs, for anybody's. But they still left the leak. They wouldn't send anyone up just to even stop the leak. I begged them. And obviously, when that leak kept leaking, it has had an absolutely Mm -hmm. terrible effect on your home. Mm -hmm. Just outline to our listeners how this has impacted. What has been destroyed on you? Well, as you can see yourself, the roof, the walls, the skirting boards, my sitting room floor, I went out to the kitchen lino, the bathrooms destroyed and the child's bedroom. I only got new carpet put down. That's all going to have to be lifted. And you think that the leak started in the toilet cistern upstairs. You haven't had a toilet. You haven't been able to use a toilet since. No, no. He came up Friday and stopped the leak, but I have been using buckets now to flush the toilet. So that was just Friday gone by, seven weeks later when all this damage was caused, that somebody arrived. Have they told you when they're going to start repairing all this damage? No, no, haven't heard from anyone since Friday, so I don't know what's going to happen. I have the child strapped in the buggy for seven weeks because he couldn't go on the floor, it was all wet and damp. And I can see the bubbles there in the corner coming up through the floor. You must just feel distraught and devastated over this. Yeah, because I wouldn't really have the money to redo the house up. Do you know what I'm saying? Because I'm caring for my two grandchildren. But there was water coming out from behind the fireplace and everything, so I don't know how much damage is done. You've been in this house how long? Oh, I'd say a good 10, 12 years, and I never went to council for anything. Is your rent up to date? Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is, to be sure. I asked Lorraine, would she not have thought about getting someone else in to fix the leak and not let it get so bad? I wouldn't have the money to pay someone to come in and fix it. Like, I'm renting from the council. It's their property, so they should have been here to help me switch, even knock the leak off so I wouldn't have this much damage. But apart from not having the money, if you get someone else in to fix the council's property, I was afraid they wouldn't come back in the near future to help me out again. Like, the council is my landlord, so why should I have to pay someone private when I'm paying them? And you're worried that they come in and something went wrong. Well, then, whose who's responsibility would it be? Yeah, and they wouldn't come back then in the near future. It had to help me at all. But now I don't know where I'm going to get the money to fix it all up. I just haven't got it. Local councillor Paul Bell has allocated the remainder of his council allocation allowance, which amounts to €1,050 to the council to assist Lorraine and her family. He tells me why. Oh, well, over the summer period, Marie, uh, I was getting called from various constituents uh, that basic house maintenance and basic house repairs uh, were becoming somewhat challenging and that the council it could, it was either not responding or could not respond. And when they did visit the homes, uh, they were declaring that they did not have the available resources uh, to complete walks, walks like plumbing walks, central heating, 
windows. I wasn't really acutely aware of how bad the problem was until the last, say, three to four weeks uh, when I was receiving an increasing level of calls. prompted me, obviously, to have a very detailed conversation with Low County Council, who informed me that basically not only was there no budget available for housing maintenance and housing repairs, but there was also no contingency and that uh, there was an ongoing negotiation within council to see if it was possible to create a contingency fund to last till the end of the year. In the case of Lorraine Mulready, are you shocked that it took seven weeks from when a leak first appeared for somebody to come and repair it and allow that damage to fester? I have to say I'm absolutely appalled. Uh, Firstly, I made contact with council to try and make sure that that the home would be visited by the appropriate person, Uh, and that became an issue. Having seen images of the damage done, I pointed it out to council to say, well, you know, this damage was unnecessary, in my opinion. Uh, Also, that if the call had been responded to in the appropriate time, uh, money that are now going to have to be spent on repairing the damage uh, would have been very, very minor. In fact, as I understand it, from the pressure that I continually put on the council, it was eventually decided that the appropriate craftsperson would be sent to the home. And indeed, um, the repair, the repair to the actual source of the problem was completed in a very short space of time. As a council since 2004, I've never witnessed this type of behaviour. I'm not quite clear what has happened uh, that council have adopted this approach. But I do understand from speaking to other councillors also that this is a problem that has been creeping up in the last couple of months. Now, I do believe that we are in, in an emergency situation. I've had called some other uh, council tenants, and I believe that when a council tenant is actually paying their rent, is fully paid up in their rent, well, then they have a contract with council to ensure that the home is maintained, maintained for basic repairs, such as central heating, such as electrics, uh, plumbing, the, the basic needs to make sure that the home is, is suitable for, for habitation. Uh, and this is what's quite shocked me, that there's a, some kind of silent acknowledgement that there is a contract between the tenant and the council, and yet council have taken this step. We are now in an emergency situation, and what I've done was basically uh, reviewed my own councillor allocation, which is a, an allocation to give to the community. But I actually surrendered that uh, money back to council on the basis of uh, trying to take care of this particular situation. But if there was any additional funds left over from this situation, that those monies would be given elsewhere. I have appealed to other councillors to consider the same thing. In the meantime, Lorraine, whose two young grandchildren live with her, has to try and get on with everyday life. I asked her if it's tough. Yeah, it has been because I had to keep the baby in the buggy. I couldn't let him out on any of the floors. He's not walking. He was learning to crawl. So he was either going from the walker to the buggy. So it wasn't really fair. Seven weeks like the poor devil being strapped into a buggy because of the dangers of the floor and him slipping on it. Derek has just gone one and Alan's three and a half. And how have you been managing with toilets? Just filling the bucket and putting it into citron and flushing it. It has to be done and the Alan, little Alan's out in nappies so it's running up and down all day long flushing it for him. And can I ask, you say they came on Friday so they have been in touch. Are you worried now because of the length of time it took to repair the leak 
that it's going to take an equally as long time to to repair the ceiling and the floors. Well, I had a man up today and he said they could have the ceiling done in a day, that I wouldn't have to move it or anything. But what's going to happen with the rest of the damage? It's not just the ceiling now. There's four rooms destroyed. Just have to wait and see what they're going to do for me. Probably nothing. So I'll just have to fight my way and try and repair the house. Keep it safe for the kids because I can't have the kids staying here if it's not safe and healthy. You've said to me that you know of other uh, people in not, I suppose, in as bad a situation as you, but also need repairs, John. And are they facing the same obstacles? Yeah, yeah. There was actually a girl on Facebook or child's bedroom ceiling had a hole and then they still never came out to her there's people with their shower doors falling off and they just don't seem to i've slates off me roof out the front since months and there's boards nesting and they still never come up to fix that either for me but i see there the blue mold and there is the, the, your walls are just destroyed from the mushrooms. water there was mushrooms on the walls through the day from the damp it's just it, it doesn't look as bad now because it's starting to dry out a bit but could you imagine the smell that's going to be under that floor now if I have to lift it all up? Like seven weeks of damp. And you must feel so frustrated because if it had been dealt with initially, it wouldn't be so bad now. And think of the money that will have to be spent. Yeah, it wouldn't have been so bad if they just come up on the seventh and stopped the little leak. But now the whole house is... Marie Kearns reporting and in response to Marie's report, Louth County Council says it's not the council's policy to issue statements in relation to individual cases. But that's where we leave you for today. Remember before we go that there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie Our thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning. That'll be at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.